I love to sing. Amen? It doesn't matter how you sound. I love to sing. Not just what you're singing, but who you're singing to. That we get to sing to Jesus. And uh, yeah, that was good. It's true, you know, that he came to seek and save that which is lost. And, uh, and I will take you to task, <laughs> any one of you that knows Jesus as Savior, and argue that he was at work in your life way before you wanted anything to do with him, way before you sought him, way before you loved him, way before you turned to him. He was already at work in your life, drawing you to himself. Um, and that's amazing. Amen? All right, if you got your Bibles, open them up. Go to Acts chapter 19, but we will not just be there. Uh, we're going to be all over. You've got to have your Bibles open this morning or on your phone or your iPad or whatever it is that you use. We are going to be reading a lot of Scripture this morning. There will be just telling you up front, there will be a lot of time spent this morning in just me reading Scripture, okay? Uh, what I want to look at this morning is I want to do what would kind of be considered a survey of the church at Ephesus. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing this little series called um, uh, Who We Are, talking about our corporate identity in Christ and that we are bride, body, family. Those are the primary metaphors or identities that we're given corporately. In the New Testament last week, we kind of wrapped it up with some very practical application from all those things. Um, and, uh, and, but today and for the next couple of weeks, I, I still just want to spend some time on the church the church in general. And one of the things I want to do is I want to look at a couple different churches and a couple different key players in the New Testament. And this morning I want to look at the book of, or at the church at Ephesus. Again, not just the book of Ephesians, um, but the church at Ephesus. We have more information, just more data on the church at Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. And I think that that's for a reason. Uh, and so very quickly, uh, there's, you have information about the church at Ephesus, how it first started at the very end of Acts chapter 18. You have all of Acts chapter 19. In the middle of Acts chapter 20, you have Paul uh, gathering just a, a little bit away from the city of Ephesus, and the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church at Ephesus, come to him, and he has quite a, a lengthy conversation with them there. Then, of course, you do have the entire book of Ephesians. You also have the book of 1 Timothy. Timothy was Paul's co-worker and kind of his uh, son in the faith. And later on, Paul sends Timothy back to Ephesus, as we'll look at. And the entire book of 1 Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy, but while he's at Ephesus leading the church there. You also have the book of 1 John, and we won't even touch on that one um, this morning just because we don't have time, but most people believe that uh, John later on in his life was one of the elders, one of the leaders at the Ephesian church. Uh, and that most people think that the book of 1 John was actually written first and foremost to the people at the church at Ephesus, and then later on that letter was passed around to different people throughout the region. And then also, you have in the beginning of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have these seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus tells John to write to these churches in Asia Minor, over which again John was kind of one of the elders or overseers of that region. Um, and the first letter to the first church there is the letter to the church at Ephesus, okay? And so there's a lot of information on it, and there's a lot of information on it, I believe, uh, for a reason. And one of the reasons it'll be 
important or one of the reasons I, I, I want to look at it this morning is just because so much of what happened in Ephesus, man, I long, I long that what happened in Ephesus would happen among us. And there are principles and there are takeaways and there are applications for us, but in the end, what you saw in Ephesus was a supernatural move of God's Spirit, of His sovereign Spirit. And I, and I just pray that as we read it this morning, that God would stir our hearts to long for it, and that in His mercy, and in His kindness, and His grace to us, that He would allow us to experience the same thing. But also, uh, what I really want to get at at the end, once we kind of cover just some of the give you kind of the storyline and read a lot of the scripture here, is we're left with one almost kind of a haunting question about the church of Ephesus that the church of Ephesus had to answer. It was a question that Jesus Christ himself set before the church, and I believe that he sets before us today. And every church in their time and in their season needs, needs to answer this question. And so I just want to jump in. Have your Bibles ready. We're going to be flipping through. I'll tell you where to go. I'm reading out of the ESV. Uh, if you don't have an ESV, that is totally fine. No English translation is perfect, but the English Standard Version is what I usually use here on Sunday mornings. Um, I say that because if you have an ESV, you just maybe want to follow along. If you don't have an ESV, you can still follow along. I know for me, when somebody's reading from a different translation than what I'm reading, I just get really confused. So maybe if you don't, you just want to listen. Uh, But if you want to follow along with something different, that's totally fine. But we're going to jump in. I'll make a few comments, and then I'll get to that one haunting question that I want to ask at the end. So this is Acts, actually the end of chapter 18. This is how the church came to be. Acts chapter 18 verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now let me stop, and can I get those uh, on the screen, please, Dave, or whoever's back there. There's two maps that I need up on, up on the screen. Can you get those or not? Thank you. You're awesome. This is the first map. This is Paul's um, second missionary journey. And very quickly here, what happened is Paul went up from Antioch. That was always kind of his starting place and the place he'd come back to. He travels up through Galatia, Asia, into Macedonia. And then he comes around and just very briefly, being over into Kia, which is Athens and Corinth, he jumps over across the pond there, the Aegean Sea, to the city of Ephesus. Now, um, what he does is he's just there very briefly, but he leaves this husband and wife church planting team named Priscilla and Aquila. Um, They're at Ephesus. They were, again, kind of his co-workers. And then he travels on and goes back to Antioch and reports to the church there. And so while Paul is gone, what you just see here that we just read in the end of Acts chapter 18 is that there's this guy... Uh, named Apollos, who comes up from Alexandria, which you can't see on the map, but he comes up there, and he kind of knows something about Jesus. He kind of knows what would be considered John's message, so he's kind of like an Old Testament believer. Again, all he, it says that he's acquainted with was the baptism of John, meaning that John had this message that, hey, there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie, but he's not just going to, I baptize you with repentance, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so he's kind of got partial, you know, this kind of partial message. Um, but Priscilla and Aquila come, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, and now go to the second map. 
please, Dave. And this is the second one. On Paul's third missionary journey then, again, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. He comes back down to Antioch, and then he leaves again, and you'll see one of the first places he goes through Cilicia, Galatia, and into Asia then is over to Ephesus. And I say all that, I don't know if you're following me here, but there's a gap of time of probably like anywhere from two to four years between the end of Acts chapter 18 and the beginning of Acts chapter 19 when Paul now in the beginning of chapter 19 comes into the city of Ephesus. And again, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos are there. They're the ones that have kind of started the church um, and been shepherding it. But now when Paul comes onto the scene, things are getting ready to explode. So pick up reading with me again in Acts, <coughs> in Acts chapter 19. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Again, this is on his third missionary journey now. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now what's happening here is they, these guys had essentially believed the message that Apollos had given. Apollos was a good guy, but again, he just wasn't fully informed with the way of Jesus. So again, when Paul says, Well, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Meaning that like, that's what happens when you believe. They're like, Well, no, we, don't, we didn't even know that. We've never even heard of this Holy Spirit. Verse 3, And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is Jesus. So Paul tells them the full message about Jesus and part of the good news of the gospel that Jesus said, it's better for you if I go, because if I go, then I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And it's for anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And these guys had not fully received that message. And so verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. So again, kind of like at the beginning with Jesus and his 12 disciples here, you see another 12 disciples started in Ephesus, and now Paul's going to stick around Ephesus, and things are just going to break loose, and it's going to be awesome, and I pray that God would do something similar in our day for the honor and glory of his name. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, so here's what happens. Paul's going to church, but the church folks kind of get tired of the message. There's some in there that believe, but there's a lot in there that just want to cling to their dead man-made man -made religiosity. And so they begin to become resistant to Paul, and so Paul leaves the synagogue or the local church building, and he goes over and he rents this, this hall of Tyrannus, which was some sort of lecture hall, okay? So he rents this place, and he says that he begins to reason, to preach, to teach daily in this hall. And he goes, and then verse 10, it says, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So for two years, every day, Paul has this rented space, and he's in there, and he's just proclaiming it so much so that, again, he's not necessarily going out and proclaiming to the whole city or to the entire region, but everybody in the region within all of Asia begins to hear the word of the Lord because Paul just continues to proclaim this message throughout church history during the first and second great awakening. You had men like Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield. You had these men that were like Paul here. They were like these individual spark plugs. And they just kept firing and firing and firing. And from them, then the gospel would go forth and people would be sent out so that everybody within a region would hear the word of the Lord. And may it be that God would do the same among us in our day. That he would raise up people. I'm praying, I, my prayer this week has been that God would raise up some of you that are sitting here right now to boldly proclaim the word of the Lord. That you would not shrink back. 
and that God would do a work like this to where throughout the whole region everybody would know and have to deal with Jesus Christ. That we would hear about this message and that the gospel would spread like it did in Ephesus. Verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Not just miracles, miracles are awesome. But God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. One of my most favorite stories in the scriptures. Here we go, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which apparently was like a vocation or a thing back then, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches or whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them. So they're going around and their thing is they're an itinerant Jewish exorcist. And so what do they do for a living? They go around casting out demons, but yet they don't really have the power of God. It was through some sort of religiosity thing that they did. And they're like, oh man, well Paul just seems to mention Jesus and this works, but they don't really know Jesus themselves. And so they try to do this to this guy that's demon-possessed. And the Spirit answers him back. And he says, I love this, Jesus I know. And, and, and Paul I recognize. Or some translations say, and I've heard of Paul. So the demon's like, Jesus, absolutely, terrified of him. Paul, heard of him too. But who are you? That's not what you want to hear from the mouth of a guy whom you're trying to cast a demon out of. Verse 16, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. In other words, these guys tried to just kind of use the name of Jesus just simply in name, not believing it in their heart, not really having a relationship with Jesus, just saying Jesus but not really believing in him and following him as Lord. And that doesn't work out. That does not work out well for them. In fact, they literally lose their pants over it. (laughs) They run out of the house naked and bleeding. But the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was honored. It was lifted high. Again, that God would do this among us by his power. Again, one of my goals today, guys, I want us to long together for the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in our life to where God would do among us what only he can do so that he would be honored, so that he would be glorified, that the name of Jesus might be extolled and lifted high and revered. It says, verse 18, and many of those who now were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So people who really do believe it, they're not just like praying a little prayer, filling out a little card, and then going about their business with absolutely no change to their lives. They come and they're confessing Jesus, and they're divulging their practices. Verse 19, we see that, and a number of those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So there was, Ephesus, we don't have time to go into all this, we'll see some of this at the end of this chapter. But there were many pagan gods and cults. One of them that we'll see later on in this chapter was of this god Artemis, uh, who apparently was supposedly in Greek mythology was Zeus's daughter. Um, and, uh, but they had these magic arts, witchcraft that went along with it. And many people in the city practiced this, but now they're getting saved. 
But they're not, just, they're, they're not just saying, okay, we believe in Jesus, but we'll just hang on to our magic scrolls. We'll just hang on to our witchcraft. We'll just hang on to our old way of life. But they bring those things out and they want nothing to do with it. And it says that they burn it all. And so much so, and, and this is amazing, it says, and they counted the value, the value of all these scrolls, and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, when, when you, you, you kind of do the translation of how much this is worth, 50,000 pieces of silver, this is very significant. There's a reason why it's in here. It comes out to 135 years' worth of wages. If you just take, uh, let's say, the average salary or the average um, yearly income for a person is, or, or, or a people group is $50,000 a year. $50,000 times 135 years worth of that comes out to uh, somewhere in the, in the area of $6.75 million. That's what they came out and they burned. What's the, what, what, what's the point? What's the application, Eric? Should we just get together and burn all our secular books? No, but the point is, is that they did not care what it cost them. They did not care. They were not concerned about whether or not this, this following Jesus, this giving their life to Jesus, this, this, this total change that had happened, they didn't care if it worked out for them financially or not. They weren't concerned about what people thought. They came and they wanted to get rid of it because they wanted to live a life of wholehearted surrender to Jesus Christ. In verse 20, and again, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see to Rome. So Paul has been there for a couple years, and he's kind of getting ready to move on. And so it says, verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia, which again was kind of across the pond there, two of his apostolic co-workers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, during this time, we just don't have time to go into all this, but the local silversmiths, led by a man named Demetrius, um, most, notable, most notably, obviously, when they're getting rid of uh, between six and seven million dollars worth of stuff that was kind of um, uh, originated and sold and made in Ephesus, and again, this went along with all their temple worship of Artemis, uh, or Diana, she's also called, and all this stuff, this is going to have an impact on the economic climate of the city. And so this guy named Demetrius gets all the silversmiths together, and he's like, he essentially says, look, we can't let this go on. And he kind of gets this mob, and everybody's fired up, and yeah, down with Paul, we can't do this. This is going to, uh, you know, ruin our income. And, you know, they, be, they say that it's all because, you know, Artemis was this great god, and we, she should be worshipped. But really, it's just because they were lining their pockets. And that's what the rest of chapter 19 is about, is that they gather this whole mob, but then eventually it settles down. Uh, Paul wants to go in and address the crowd, but all of his friends are like, you, you, they are going to kill you. You cannot go in there because they know Paul is the primary instigator. And so after the uproar kind of ceases, it settles down and they go um, and they send Paul out of town. Now flip over to chapter 20 because again, this is a little bit later. Paul then goes, if you remember uh, the third map there, he leaves and he goes and he comes and he travels around to Macedonia and some other churches that he'd been at before, and then he comes back through, and he's on his way now to Jerusalem. So again, this is quite a bit of time later after being in the city of Ephesus, but he gathers together these Ephesian elders, many of them that he would have discipled personally, many of them that he would have seen come to know the Lord, many of them that he would have served with in ministry. He's close with these guys. He's close with these guys. 
And he meets them. It's a very beautiful scene. He meets them on a beach. And he gathers them there. And he knows that this is the last time that he's ever going to see them again. Again, people that were close friends. And in Acts chapter 20, um, starting verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course of the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And now listen to this, verse 29. This is amazing to me. Again, people among whom that had been discipled by Paul, by Timothy, by John, by Priscilla and Aquila, by Apollos. These men that are, these nameless men that are now leading this church. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then it gets even worse. And from among your own selves, the group that Paul is talking to, this man that he's weeping with, that he loves, and then he's talking, he goes, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. And there was much weeping. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship, and that's the last time that Paul will ever see the Ephesian elders or the people in Ephesus. Now, again, Paul has just told them he's somehow by the Spirit, um, not prophesied in the sense of speaking it into being, but told them that it's coming, uh, that there were going to be false teachers. Um, that were, going to that were going to rise up. And so I want you to flip over to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is now, again, years later from everything that we just read. And Paul, again, in, in Acts there, we read that Paul had sent Timothy and Erastus over into Macedonia to do some work, but now it's years later. Paul comes through Ephesus. He leaves, and now he's brought Timothy back with him. And Timothy is now in Ephesus, and he's the point guy. He's the leader now at the church, at the church in Ephesus. 
And I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, giving you a feel of the climate and kind of a little bit of a sense of what's going on in the church, primarily that Timothy is left there for the express purpose of confronting false teachers. These ones that Paul said were going, were going to arise. 1 Timothy chapter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, listen, remain at Ephesus so that, why? You may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote, what? Speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And I'll talk more about this later, but what is this false teaching promoting? speculations. It sounds real mystical. It sounds real neat. But in the end, it's all speculation. It's not really clear. There's nothing that is unclear about the gospel, folks. That's one of the ways you can spot false teaching. That it it, it sounds mystical. It sounds kind of good. It sounds really spiritual. But in the end, does it exalt Jesus Christ? Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. How do you know when the gospel is being boldly proclaimed and taught and received and believed? It always causes us to love one another. He says, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Okay? Now, we could spend a lot of time, and again, this is, we're just skipping, we're skipping across the pond here. Um, but, you know, we don't even have time to look at First John, like I said, or uh, the most obvious one, the actual book of Ephesians, which is written to the Ephesian church. But I want you to turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 2. Seven churches that Jesus appears to the Apostle John as he is now exiled on the island of Patmos, uh, which is just like a big rock in the middle of the ocean, not much there. That's why he was exiled there. And John has a vision of the risen Christ that comes and appears to him. And I think it's worth noting at the end of Revelation chapter 1 real quick just who this Jesus is that's speaking to him. Because he's not the humble, meek, mild, Galilean peasant that came the first time. He is now the risen, exalted Lord of all, seated at the right hand of the Father with all power and with all authority. And he is described in the end of Revelation chapter 1, let's just look at this quickly so we know exactly who it is that's speaking to the Ephesian church and speaking to us. Paul says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a, f- a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its strength. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You should be terrified. John was. That's the same Jesus that we were singing to a little bit ago this morning. And that's important to know because now let's listen to what this Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus and through them to us. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, and to the angel 
of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear, listen, with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now remember, Paul said that false teachers were going to arise. They did arise. He left Timothy in Ephesus to combat it. Here, later on, we see Jesus Christ commending the church, not just Timothy, but everybody in the church, for standing against false doctrine, for taking a stand against these false apostles, these men who called themselves apostles and were not, who said that they had authority to go with, that's why they could bring this new teaching, but they were not. No, 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 you're false. There's one authority, it's from Jesus, okay? And they've not given up. They'd endured in it. They'd stood strong. They did what they needed to do. But, verse 4, but I have this against you. Again, this is, this is a legit church. <laughs> They're not putting up with false doctrine. Um, they're taking people to task. They're pressing them on whether or not what they're saying is true. They've experienced unbelievable supernatural power. Not just miracles, but extraordinary miracles. They've seen demons cast out. They've, they've, they've surrendered. They've, they've lost tons of money following Jesus by burning their scrolls and everything else. They have unbelievable leaders. <laughs> I mean, who's not going to go to this church with Timothy and Paul and John and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Like, I, that's where I'm going if that church is around. So much good. And yet Jesus says, but I have this against you. Listen. That you have abandoned or forsaken the love that you had at first. Here's the question, the haunting question that I wanted to get to, that I mentioned at the beginning, that I think the Church of Revelation is kind of left with, and again, we, we don't, after this, or I'm sorry, the, the Church in Ephesus is left with in the book of Revelation, we, we don't fully know how they respond. Um, but the question on the table is this, is will we fight for gospel clarity? Will we fight to make sure that the gospel, that false doctrine does not infiltrate our teaching and our hearts and our belief system? Will we fight for gospel clarity without, though, without forsaking our first love? That was the question on the table to the church in Ephesus. And I think it's a question on the table to us today and I think to every church at some point in the span of their existence. Will we fight for gospel clarity without forsaking our first love? And maybe you don't realize how important this is, but this, is, this question is at the heart of almost everything that happens 
within a local church is that so many people, maybe you guys have heard this before, is so many people, it's, it's very cliche to say this now today and, and kind of hip in some circles to say it, is that, man, we don't need more doctrine, we just need Jesus. Well, that's a false dichotomy. Jesus wrote this book, and it's filled with doctrine, and it's all from him. So I don't need to choose between the two. And people say, well, doctrine just divides. No, what divides is men who are not willing to take a stand on what this book teaches. Division and chaos always comes in where we are not willing to take a stand doctrinally on what is true. And people say, doctrine just divides. Let's just love each other. Let's just love Jesus. That's false. On the other hand, and this seems to be the ditch on the other side of the road that the Ephesian church had seemed to have fallen into, I'll tell you what. If you fight for gospel clarity, if you fight for the truth of the Word of God, if you stand on biblical doctrine and what is true, it is very possible to forget that in the end, all you have is Jesus Christ, bloodied, hanging on a cross, dying for you, and you lose your love for him. And Mercy Hill, I'm telling you that in our lives today and over the course for as long as God gives us to exist together as a church, um, and when I say as long as he gives us to exist together as a church, I really mean that because if you go on and you read just the, his letter, Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus and all, these, and all these churches, he can take away the lampstand from its place. And the lampstand is the same. Like he, can, he can take away the light of our witness. He can allow our local church not to exist. Now, he's always going to build his universal church, but let me tell you something. He doesn't have to do it through Mercy Hill, folks. You know that, right? He doesn't have to. And it's an honor and it's a privilege for us to gather. And it's why we need to take very seriously what we've been talking about over the last several weeks and, and what we do every week here when we open the Word of God. That we exist for Jesus Christ. And it is his presence in us that is the light of the world. And if we don't have him, if we fall out of love with him, then we don't have diddly squat. Did I just say diddly squat? That's still, I haven't said that in a long time. Anyway, whatever you want to fill in there. If we don't have a passion and love for Jesus, we don't have anything. And do we need to defend the scriptures? Do we need to have right doctrine? Do we need to stand against false, false apostles and false teachers and false doctrine? Absolutely. We absolutely need to. There are other churches, as you read the rest of these letters, we just don't have time to go into it, that have been accepting these false teachers. They've been accepting the teaching of Jezebel and of the Nicolaitans, these, these, which again are these pictures and images of false doctrine. We can't do that. But we can't forsake our first love either. Um, and here's what's so ironic about all this is that at the core of it when we become like the church in Ephesus where we're standing against false teaching and we're making good effort that's good and right and holy to do so to defend the clarity and the purity of the gospel the way that we lose our first love 
is by forgetting that that message that we're defending to the world and to other people and these false teachers, we forget that that message is first and foremost to us. That's how it happens. And that's why I never have any idea what the worship team, well, sometimes I have some idea what the worship team is going to sing. Um, but I didn't think through what they were going to be singing right before we sang this morning. And that's why for me personally, I was very moved as we were singing that song. Um, because in the end, I'll tell you guys, that last refrain, that last chorus that we sang, that's what we have. It's that refrain of, I'd be lost, I'd be lost, I'd be lost without you, Jesus. I'm so thankful and this is, again, this is a simple message, but I'm so thankful that Jesus saved me. And that's exactly how it happened, too. He saved me. He saved me. I didn't save myself. You didn't save yourself. He saved me, and He saved you. And it's when we forget that. It's when grace no longer is personal, but it, is, it just becomes this doctrinal thing, this idea that everything uh, that is dear and central to us and the joy of our salvation um, begins to go away. I want you to flip back just quickly because I want to break this down a little bit. Um, Again, we've had a lot to cover this morning, and I, we just don't have time to do all I wanted to do. But I, I want to go back and just point out real quickly. Go to Acts chapter 20, where Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders. And there's a couple things that are central to, that, that I think kind of sum up um, whether or not we're holding to this uh, to doctrinal purity and to, and to uh, gospel clarity. And again, they're the things that we need to defend. Um, you know, there are certain hills, and this is just a very practical thing in church life. You know, we just had our partnership class a week or two ago, and we'll be having another one in March. By the way, we'll be having a partnership class every other month here in 2019, so the next one will be March 17th, um, Sunday evening. But at that class, we go through our doctrinal statement. And there are certain things in our doctrinal statement that, like, that you have to believe or you're not a Christian. Um, and that's just the way, the way it is. Uh, you can't say that Jesus isn't God and you can't say that, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't real. Like, if you don't believe those things, then you're not a believer in Christ because you have to believe those things to be saved. But there are other things that are secondary. And so there's hills that we will die on and then there's things that we hold more open-handed and hills that we won't die on. And that's part of what's just important to learn in this life because we don't want to die on hills that aren't worth dying on. However, in Paul's message here in, in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, I think he gives us, and again, this isn't, this isn't exhaustive. Um, there's other ways you could put this. There's other places you could go. But I think he kind of gives us four clues or four pointers to four hills that we need to die on. Four hills, four doctrine hills that we need to die on, not just to defend, but to vibrantly believe for ourselves that we would not forsake our first love. Again, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he makes a couple of summary statements about his time that he spent in Ephesus. 
And they're this. In verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 20 says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And here's what he says. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. And here's one of the summary statements and two of the things listed. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. That's one. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, sounds simple. But one of the things we always need to defend, or two of the things really, and that we always need to believe for ourselves, is repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance towards God. Guys, the message of repentance that we need to turn from our sin and turn towards God and seek his mercy and his forgiveness is not just something that we preach just at one time. Not just something that we should remember just when we first came to salvation. But forever and for always, real repentance and real faith needs to be an active part of our daily Christian life. And I ask you this morning, is it a part of yours? That there is inside of you an old nature, an old sinful nature, the Bible calls it the flesh, that still wages war against God and wants darkness. And when Jesus comes into your life, he gives you a new heart, and it's only by his spirit that we can overcome that old nature. But that old nature is still there, and it's dead, and it's dying, but it's not completely annihilated yet. It will be when Jesus comes back. But until then, daily, continual repentance towards God, and then on the flip side of it, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. These two things like qualify each other. Biblical repentance is not biblical repentance if it doesn't include the good news of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And biblical faith, again, so the Bible says in James that you believe in God, oh, well, that's good. Even the demons believe and tremble. Well, what's the difference between the faith of a demon and the faith of a believer or the faith of us? Is that biblical faith is, is qualified by repentance is that when we say that we have faith in Jesus Christ, it means that we also are repenting, turning away from our sin. And just the same way when we say that we're turning from our sin, that we're turning towards Jesus. We're not turning to nothingness. We're turning towards Jesus. We're running after him. And those are two of the hills that we need to continually die on. And not just die on to defend, but to appropriate to ourselves. That it is through repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, let me flip to Romans real quick. And again, I told you I was going to read a lot of scripture today. And again, I just want to read. Okay? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Romans chapter 1. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why is it the power of God for salvation? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from, by faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Now let me tell you what he's saying there, guys. 
What he's saying is, is that there's absolutely, positively, nobody out there who just naturally, in and of himself, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, says, I want Jesus. I'm a good person. I just want to do the right thing. That person does not exist. When people make the argument, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's a false argument. There are no good people. There are no good people. I know we got a lot of babies around here, and I love you, and this is always hard for mamas to hear because your baby is cute, okay? I love your baby, so does Jesus. But your baby is a sinner. Moms, dads, little kids, you will not have to teach your baby to bite. You will not have to teach your baby to take toys from other babies. You will not have to teach your baby, once they start talking, to talk back to you. Do you know why? Because there is sin alive in them. There is none righteous, guys. No, not one. Every single one of us is in desperate need of the grace and mercy of God. And the offense of the gospel is that there is nothing that you can do to remedy it other than turn to Jesus Christ, bloodied, hanging on the cross, absorbing the wrath that you and I deserve. And you should be offended by that in your natural self. But for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that is infinitely good news. That Jesus Christ would come and that he would take my place absorbing the wrath of God. And so I, by his spirit, because he opened my eyes to see it as precious, say, Jesus, I want to turn from that which puts you on the cross and I want to live for your kingdom and your righteousness. The other two hills that we need to die on, going back to Acts chapter 20, again, this should always be central to our message and real in our hearts. Repentance, faith, but also the kingdom and grace. If you look at verse 24 and 25, again, he makes a summary statement about his time in Ephesus. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Listen, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Why? Gospel means good news. What is the primary um, component that makes the gospel, well, that makes the good news the good news? It is that of grace. That, that you don't deserve it, but you get all of it. You don't deserve forgiveness, but you get it. You don't deserve to be called a child of God, but you get it. You don't deserve to have the Holy Spirit come live inside your heart, inside your sinful life, but you get it. You don't deserve God's provision, but we get it. We don't deserve to have him have good plans and and have the joy of, of him being able to work through us to reach the world. We don't deserve that, but we get it. We don't deserve to have a purpose and a plan for our lives that give us meaning, but we get it in Christ Jesus. Because of grace, not because of anything that we have done. 
In verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom, again, he sums it up again, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. We just spent, for those of you that have been coming to Mercy Hill for a while, we spent two years. We finished the end of November, beginning of December, somewhere in there. We spent two years walking through the gospel of Luke. We subtitled that, that series, The Upside Down Kingdom, because Jesus came to bring a kingdom. And when, here's the deal, guys, is that the way these things go together is that when repentance towards God, understanding our sinful state, faith in the Lord Jesus, and in what specifically in Jesus? The grace that is found in the grace of God. When those things are realized, it always brings about very tangibly, very real in our lives, it brings about the kingdom. Um, one of the books that we're probably going to have you read for the E2 course that starts in March is a book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice. And the subtitle to the book is how God's grace causes us to be just. When we begin to talk about just in God's kingdom, justice reigns. The poor are helped. The naked are clothed. Those that are oppressed, people come and they fight for them, and they work for justice. Why? Because we've experienced God's grace. And so one of the ways you can tell whether or not these four hills that we need to die on of repentance, of faith, again, faith in this grace, this good news, is always that the kingdom of God is going to begin to become tangible. Um, worship team, you can come up. You can come up and we'll begin to close. Let me flip back to the book of Revelation here. Again, I know I've given you a lot of information this morning, but here's the deal. Here's what kind of the instructions that Jesus leaves for this church. He says, I have this against you, that you've forsaken or abandoned the love that you had at first. And again, I think this is love for him, but also love for each other. You can't separate those two. What's he say to do? Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If I had to sum that up, he says, remember, repent, and return. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember. Repent. Remember your sinful state. Remember how you used to love me. Repent of it in your heart. Make a decision to turn. And then return. Do the works that you did at first. And guys, as I study the church at Ephesus, the only works that I see them doing at first are what we first talked about in Acts chapter 19 when because of the move of the Holy Spirit and the conviction that was upon them and the good news that they had received in Jesus, the good works that they did were they came out and they didn't care what it cost them. They didn't care, again, between five and six million dollars probably, conservatively. And they gave it all away, they burned it all. They didn't care. And it's very possible, guys, as you think about your life, I know that as I think about my life, early on, uh, I didn't know a lot about the Word or about the Bible or defending right doctrine. Or I, didn't, I didn't even really know what was right fully. There's, there, it takes time. But early on, I know one of the things that marked my life is 
is I didn't care what sin I had to confess. And I didn't care what people thought about me. And I didn't care about um, whatever shameful thing I needed to say. I'd say it publicly. And I didn't care because I knew. I knew that no matter what anybody else thought about me, I knew that Jesus loved me. And as I look at my own life, and I bet, and I bet as you look at your life too, because again, this is the drift, this is the bent, this is the enemy that we wage war against that tries to get us to do this. The drift seems to be is that over time, we begin to care more and more about what other people think and about what they might say. Um, and so we begin to shrink back. We begin to not bring those things out. We begin to not confess them. We begin to put on the mask and play the role of the hypocrite that acts like everything is fine and put on our little church mask. Everything's okay. How you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? Oh, good. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Yeah. And we do that whole shtick. And in the end, Jesus with eyes like fire and with a face shining like the sun in all its strength, looks right at us. And he says, you need to repent. You need to return to me. And the good news this morning, guys, is that if you find yourself in that place, if you find yourself in a place where your heart has grown a little bit cold towards the love of God, even though you could probably defend the doctrine and defend our doctrinal statement better now than you could 10, 15, 20 years ago or whatever. But your heart has grown cold. The good news this morning is that Jesus, again this morning, holds out his hand. And he says, I love you. I'm glad you're standing for the truth and I'm glad you want right doctrine. I'm glad you're studying and you're, you know, reading all these good articles on desiringgod.com and the Gospel Coalition website and all those things. He goes, but I want your heart. I want your heart. Guys, does he have your heart this morning? Does he have your heart? As we come this morning and we take the Lord's table, I just, you know, this is why I love ending with communion every week. Yeah, nothing you guys haven't heard before, but what we have in the end is Jesus Christ, bloodied, hanging on a cross, his body broken for us, his shed blood poured out for us. And this morning, as we come, and if you're helping serve communion, you can come on down. Um, as we come and we partake of these things, I also just want to offer prayer for anybody who wants it. I'm going to be sitting up here in the front. Uh, and if anybody just wants to, if you just feel the need for prayer this morning and you just say, Eric, I want to return. I don't want to forsake my first love. I want Jesus to have all of my heart and I don't care about who knows. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way or make you give a speech, but I just want to pray for you. And I'm telling you that I, I've been there myself. But guys, Jesus deserves everything. Okay? Let's keep nothing back from him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it 
in remembrance of me. Father, we come this morning. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, we do not want to be people that shrink back from seeing you with eyes like fire and the face like the sun shining in all its strength. That when you say something to our hearts, we do not want to be those who shrink back and do not obey. But we want to be those people who choose to turn and to run to you again, knowing Knowing, how can we, knowing that there is grace, knowing that there is forgiveness, knowing that there is restoration and redemption. And how can we know? Because you came and you shed your blood. And he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Thank you for the good news, Lord. Help us to run to the cross this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.